Chapter Eight of Arthur Mervyn. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Arthur Mervyn by Charles Brockton Brown. Chapter Eight. This extraordinary interview was now past. Pleasure as well as pain attended my reflections on it. I adhered to the promise I had improvidently given to Welbeck, but had excited displeasure and perhaps suspicion in the lady. She would find it hard to account for my silence. She would probably impute it to perverseness, or imagine it to flow from some incident connected with the death of Clavering, calculated to give a new edge to her curiosity. It was plain that some connection subsisted between her and Welbeck. Would she drop the subject at the point which it had now attained? Would she cease to exert herself to extract from me the desired information? or would she not rather make Welbeck a party in the cause, and prejudice my new friend against me? This was an evil proper by all lawful means to avoid. I knew of no other expedient than to confess to him the truth with regard to Clavering, and explain to him the dilemma in which my adherence to my promise had involved me. I found him on my return home, and delivered him the letter with which I was charged. At the sight of it, surprise, mingled with some uneasiness, appeared in his looks. "'What?' said he, in a tone of disappointment. "'You then saw the lady?' I now remembered his directions to leave my message at the door, and apologized for neglecting them by telling my reasons. His chagrin vanished, but not without an apparent effort, and he said that all was well, the affair was of no moment.' After a pause of preparation, I entreated his attention to something which I had to relate. I then detailed the history of Clavering and of my late embarrassments. As I went on, his countenance betokened increasing solicitude. His emotion was particularly strong when I came to the interrogatories of Mrs. Wentworth in relation to Clavering. But this emotion gave way to profound surprise when I related the manner in which I had eluded her inquiries. I concluded with observing that, when I promised forbearance on the subject of my own adventures, I had not foreseen any exigence which would make an adherence to my promise difficult or inconvenient, that, if his interest was promoted by my silence, I was still willing to maintain it, and requested his directions how to conduct myself on this occasion." He appeared to ponder deeply and with much perplexity on what I had said. When he spoke there was a hesitation in his manner and circuity in his expressions that proved him to have something in his thoughts which he knew not how to communicate. He frequently paused, but my answers and remarks occasionally given appeared to deter him from the revelation of his purpose. Our discourse ended, for the present, by his desiring me to persist in my present plan. I should suffer no inconveniences from it, since it would be my own fault if an interview again took place between the lady and me. Meanwhile, he should see her, and effectually silence her inquiries. I ruminated not superficially or briefly on this dialogue. By what means would he silence her inquiries? He surely meant not to mislead her by fallacious representations. Some inquietude now crept into my thoughts. I began to form conjectures as to the nature of the scheme to which my suppression of the truth 
was to be thus made subservient. It seemed as if I were walking in the dark and might rush into snares or drop into pits before I was aware of my danger. Each moment accumulated my doubts, and I cherished a secret foreboding that the event would prove my new situation to be far less fortunate than I had, at first, fondly believed. The question now occurred, with painful repetition, who and what was Welbeck? What was his relation to this foreign lady? What was the service for which I was to be employed? I could not be contented without a solution of these mysteries. Why should I not lay my soul open before my new friend? Considering my situation, would he regard my fears and my surmises as criminal? I felt that they originated in laudable habits and views. My peace of mind depended on the favorable verdict which conscience should pass on my proceedings. I saw the emptiness of fame and luxury when put in the balance against the recompense of virtue. Never would I purchase the blandishments of adulation and the glare of opulence at the price of my honesty. Amidst these reflections the dinner hour arrived. The lady and Welbeck were present. A new train of sentiments now occupied my mind. I regarded them both with inquisitive eyes. I cannot well account for the revolution which had taken place in my mind. Perhaps it was proof of the capriciousness of my temper, or it was merely the fruit of my profound ignorance of life and manners. Whencesoever it arose, certain it is that I contemplated the scene before me with altered eyes. Its order and pomp was no longer the parent of tranquillity and awe. My wild reveries of inheriting this splendor, and appropriating the affections of this nymph, I now regarded as lunatic hope and childish folly. Education and nature had qualified me for a different scene. This might be the mask of misery and the structure of vice. My companions, as well as myself, were silent during the meal. The lady retired as soon as it was finished. My inexplicable melancholy increased. It did not pass unnoticed by Welbeck, who inquired with an air of kindness into the cause of my visible dejection. I am almost ashamed to relate to what extremes my folly transported me. Instead of answering him, I was weak enough to shed tears. This excited afresh his surprise and his sympathy. He renewed his inquiries. My heart was full, but how to disburden it I knew not. At length, with some difficulty, I expressed my wishes to leave his house and return to the country. What, he asked, had occurred to suggest this new plan? What motive could incite me to bury myself in rustic obscurity? How did I purpose to dispose of myself? Had some new friend sprung up more able or more willing to benefit me than he had been? No, I answered, I have no relation who would own me or friend who would protect. If I went into the country it would be to the toilsome occupations of a day-laborer, but even that was better than my present situation. This opinion, he observed, must be newly formed. What was there irksome or offensive in my present mode of life? That this man condescended to expostulate with me, 
to dissuade me from my new plan, and to enumerate the benefits which he was willing to confer, penetrated my heart with gratitude. I could not but acknowledge that leisure and literature, copious and elegant accommodation, were valuable for their own sake, that all the delights of sensation and refinements of intelligence were comprised within my present sphere, and would be nearly wanting in that to which I was going. I felt temporary compunction for my folly, and determined to adopt a different deportment. I could not prevail upon myself to unfold the true cause of my dejection, and permitted him, therefore, to ascribe it to a kind of homesickness, to inexperience, and to that ignorance which, on being ushered into a new scene, is oppressed with a sensation of forlornness. He remarked that these chimeras would vanish before the influence of time, and company, and occupation. On the next week he would furnish me with employment. Meanwhile he would introduce me into company where intelligence and vivacity would combine to dispel my glooms. As soon as we separated my disquietudes returned. I contended with them in vain, and finally resolved to abandon my present situation. When and how this purpose was to be effected I knew not. That was to be the theme of future deliberation. Evening having arrived, Welbeck proposed to me to accompany me on a visit to one of his friends. I cheerfully accepted the invitation, and went with him to your friend Mr. Wortley's. A numerous party was assembled, chiefly of the female sex. I was introduced by Welbeck by the title of a young friend of his. Notwithstanding my embarrassment, I did not fail to attend to what passed on this occasion. I remarked that the utmost deference was paid to my companion, on whom his entrance into this company appeared to operate like magic. His eyes sparkled, his features expanded into a benign serenity, and his wonted reserve gave place to a torrent-like and overflowing elocution. I marked this change in his deportment with the utmost astonishment. So great was it that I could hardly persuade myself that it was the same person. A mind thus susceptible of new impressions must be, I conceived, of a wonderful texture. Nothing was further from my expectations than that this vivacity was mere dissimulation, and would take its leave of him when he left the company. Yet I found this to be the case. The door was no sooner closed after him than his accustomed solemnity returned. He spake little, and that little was delivered with emphatical and monosyllabic brevity. We returned home at a late hour, and I immediately retired to my chamber, not so much from the desire of repose, as in order to enjoy and pursue my own reflections without interruption. The condition of my mind was considerably remote from happiness. I was placed in a scene that furnished fuel to my curiosity. This passion is a source of pleasure, provided its gratification be practicable. I had no reason in my present circumstances to despair of knowledge, yet suspicion and anxiety beset me. I thought upon the delay and toil which the removal of my ignorance would cost, and reaped only pain and fear from the reflection. The air was remarkably sultry. 
Lifted sashes and lofty ceilings were insufficient to attemper it. The perturbation of my thoughts affected my body, and the heat which oppressed me was aggravated by my restlessness almost into fever. Some hours were thus painfully passed when I recollected that the bath erected in the court below contained a sufficient antidote to the scorching influence of the atmosphere. I rose and descended the stairs softly, that I might not alarm Welbeck and the lady who occupied the two rooms on the second floor. I proceeded to the bath and, filling the reservoir with water, speedily dissipated the heat that incommoded me. Of all species of sensual gratification that was the most delicious, and I continued for a long time laving my limbs and moistening my hair. In the midst of this amusement I noticed the approach of day, and immediately saw the propriety of returning to my chamber. I returned with the same caution which I had used in descending. My feet were bare, so that it was easy to proceed, unattended by the smallest signal of my progress. I had reached the carpeted staircase, and was slowly ascending, when I heard, within the chamber that was occupied by the lady, a noise as of someone moving. Though not conscious of having acted improperly, yet I felt reluctance to be seen. There was no reason to suppose that this sound was connected with the detection of me in this situation, yet I acted as if this reason existed, and made haste to pass the door and gain the second flight of steps. I was unable to accomplish my design when the chamber door slowly opened, and Welbeck, with a light in his hand, came out. I was abashed and disconcerted at this interview. He started at seeing me, but, discovering in an instant who it was, his face assumed an expression in which shame and anger were powerfully blended. He seemed on the point of opening his mouth to rebuke me, but, suddenly checking himself, he said, in a tone of mildness, "'How is this? Whence come you?' His emotion seemed to communicate itself with an electrical rapidity to my heart. My tongue faltered while I made some answer. I said, I had been seeking relief from the heat of the weather in the bath. He heard my explanation in silence, and after a moment's pause passed into his own room and shut himself in. I hastened to my chamber." A different observer might have found in these circumstances no food for his suspicion or his wonder. To me, however, they suggested vague and tumultuous ideas. As I strode across the room, I repeated, "'This woman is his daughter. What proof have I of that? He once asserted it, and has frequently uttered allusions and hints from which no other inference could be drawn.' The chamber from which he came, in an hour devoted to sleep, was hers. For what end could a visit like this be paid? A parent may visit his child at all seasons without a crime. On seeing me, methought his features indicated more than surprise. A keen interpreter would be apt to suspect a consciousness of wrong. What if this woman be not his child? How shall the relationship be ascertained?' I was summoned at the customary hour to breakfast. My mind was full of ideas connected with this incident. 
I was not endowed with sufficient firmness to propose the cool and systematic observation of this man's deportment. I felt as if the state of my mind could not be but evident to him, and experienced in myself all the confusion which this discovery was calculated to produce in him. I would have willingly excused myself from meeting him, but that was impossible. At breakfast, after the usual salutations, nothing was said. For a time I scarcely lifted my eyes from the table. Stealing a glance at Welbeck, I discovered in his features nothing but his wonted gravity. He appeared occupied with thoughts that had no relation to last night's adventure. This encouraged me, and I gradually recovered my composure. Their inattention to me allowed me occasionally to throw scrutinizing and comparing glances at the face of each. The relationship of parent and child is commonly discovered in the visage, but the child may resemble either of its parents, yet have no feature in common with both. Here outlines, surfaces, and hues were an absolute contrariety. That kindred subsisted between them was possible, notwithstanding this dissimilitude, but this circumstance contributed to envenom my suspicions. Breakfast being finished, Welbeck cast an eye of invitation to the pianoforte. The lady rose to comply with his request. My eye chanced to be at that moment fixed on her. In stepping to the instrument, some motion or appearance awakened a thought in my mind which affected my feelings like the shock of an earthquake. I have too slight acquaintance with the history of the passions to truly explain the emotion which now throbbed in my veins. I had been a stranger to what is called love. From subsequent reflection I have contracted a suspicion that the sentiment with which I regarded this lady was not untinctured from this source, and that hence arose the turbulence of my feelings on observing what I construed into marks of pregnancy. The evidence afforded me was slight, yet it exercised an absolute sway over my belief. It was well that this suspicion had not been sooner excited. Now civility did not require my stay in the apartment, and nothing but flight could conceal the state of my mind. I hastened, therefore, to a distance, and shrouded myself in the friendly secrecy of my own chamber. The constitution of my mind is doubtless singular and perverse, yet that opinion perhaps is the fruit of my ignorance. It may be no means uncommon for men to fashion their conclusions in opposition to evidence and probability, and so as to feed their malice and subvert their happiness. Thus it was, in an eminent degree, in my case. The simple fact was connected, in my mind, with the train of the most hateful consequences. The depravity of Welbeck was inferred from it. The charms of this angelic woman were tarnished and withered. I had formerly surveyed her as a precious and perfect monument, but now it was a scene of ruin and blast. This had been a source of sufficient anguish, but this was not all. I recollected that the claims of a parent had been urged. Will you believe that these claims were now admitted, and that they heightened the iniquity of Welbeck into the blackest and most stupendous of all crimes? These ideas were necessarily transient. 
conclusions more conformable to appearances succeeded. This lady might have been lately reduced to widowhood. The recent loss of a beloved companion would sufficiently account for her dejection and make her present situation compatible with duty. By this new train of ideas I was somewhat comforted. I saw the folly of precipitate inferences and the injustice of my atrocious imputations, and acquired some degree of patience in my present state of uncertainty. My heart was lightened of its wonted burden, and I labored to invent some harmless explication of the scene that I had witnessed the preceding night. At dinner Welbeck appeared as usual, but not the lady. I ascribed her absence to some casual indisposition, and ventured to inquire into the state of her health. My companion said she was well, but that she had left the city for a month or two, finding the heat of summer inconvenient where she was. This was no unplausible reason for retirement. A candid mind would have acquiesced in this representation, and found in it nothing inconsistent with a supposition respecting the cause of appearances favorable to her character, but otherwise was I affected. The uneasiness which had flown for a moment returned, and I sunk into gloomy silence. From this I was roused by my patron, who requested me to deliver a billet which he put into my hand at the counting-house of Mr. Thetford, and to bring him an answer. This message was speedily performed. I entered a large building by the riverside. A spacious apartment presented itself, well furnished with pipes and hogsheads. In one corner was a smaller room in which a gentleman was busy at writing. I advanced to the door of the room, but was there met by a young person who received my paper and delivered it to him within. I stood still at the door, but was near enough to overhear what would pass between them. The letter was laid upon the desk, and presently he that sat at it lifted his eyes and glanced at the superscription. He scarcely spoke above a whisper, but his words nevertheless were clearly distinguishable. I did not call to mind the sound of his voice, but his words called up a train of recollections. Lo, said he carelessly, this from the nabob. An incident so slight as this was sufficient to open a spacious scene of meditation. This little word, half-whispered in a thoughtless mood, was a key to unlock an extensive cabinet of secrets. Thetford was probably indifferent whether his exclamation were overheard. Little did he think on the inferences which would be built upon it. The nabob! By this appellation had some one been denoted in the chamber dialogue of which I had been an unsuspected auditor. The man who pretended poverty and yet gave proofs of inordinate wealth, whom it was pardonable to defraud of thirty thousand dollars, first because the loss of that sum would be trivial to one opulent as he, and secondly because he was imagined to have acquired this opulence by other than honest methods. Instead of forthwith returning home, I wandered into the fields to indulge myself in the new thoughts which were produced by this occurrence. I entertained no doubt that the person alluded to was my patron. No new light was thrown upon his character, 
unless something were deducible from the charge vaguely made that his wealth was the fruit of illicit practices. He was opulent, and the sources of his wealth were unknown, if not to the rest of the community, at least to Thetford, but here had a plot been laid. The fortune of Thetford's brother was to rise from the success of artifices of which the credulity of Welbeck was to be the victim. To detect and to counterwork this plot was obviously my duty. My interference might now, indeed, be too late to be useful, but this was at least to be ascertained by experiment. How should my intention be effected? I had hitherto concealed from Welbeck my adventures at Thetford's house. These it was now necessary to disclose, and to mention the recent occurrence. My deductions, in consequence of my ignorance, might be erroneous, but of their truth his knowledge of his own affairs would enable him to judge. It was possible that Thetford, and he whose chamber conversation I had overheard, were different persons. I endeavored in vain to ascertain their identity by a comparison of their voices. The words lately heard, my remembrance did not enable me certainly to pronounce to be uttered by the same organs. This uncertainty was of little moment. It sufficed that Welbeck was designated by this appellation, and that therefore he was proved to be the subject of some fraudulent proceeding. The information that I possessed it was my duty to communicate as expeditiously as possible. I was resolved to employ the first opportunity that offered for this end. My meditations had been ardently pursued, and when I recalled my attention I found myself bewildered among fields and fences. It was late before I extricated myself from unknown paths and reached home. I entered the parlor, but Welbeck was not there. A table with tea equipage for one person was set, from which I inferred that Welbeck was engaged abroad. This belief was confirmed by the report of the servant. He could not inform me where his master was, but merely that he should not take tea at home. This incident was a source of vexation and impatience. I knew not, but that delay would be of the utmost moment to the safety of my friend. Wholly unacquainted as I was with the nature of his contracts with Thetford, I could not decide whether a single hour would not avail to obviate the evils that threatened him. Had I known whither to trace his footsteps, I should certainly have sought an immediate interview, but, as it was, I was obliged to wait, with what patience I could collect, for his return to his own house. I waited hour after hour in vain." The sun declined, and the shades of evening descended, but Welbeck was still at a distance. End of chapter 8